Well, I hope you found in your Bibles Luke chapter 1. It's a new place to turn in your Bibles. We've been turning to the book of 1 Corinthians for a long time, and it probably finds its way there now. But we've got to change because we've finished 1 Corinthians, and now we're starting a new series through the Gospel of Luke. And it's a great time because we're in Advent season. So I'm excited to unpack this gospel with you, our team of pastors, we're going to be preaching consecutively right through uh, this book. It's the longest one in the New Testament, and so it's going to take us a little while, but it's a rich book telling us about our Savior Jesus. I'd like to start today by simply reading the first four verses. So we're going to cover more, uh, but I want to start with just the first four. It's Luke's introduction to the book. So follow along as I read. When I finish verse number four, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and then you can reply, thanks be to God. Follow along as I read from Luke chapter one, beginning in verse number one. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that this morning you would just minister to our hearts I'm not sure what the week was like for everyone. I'm not sure what this morning has been like for people. But I do know this. Our hearts need your word. And so we just ask that you would teach us through your word. Comfort us through your word. Lead us through your word. Jesus himself said, Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so we ask that you would just open this passage to us and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, lies and propaganda have gotten a new label these days. We call them fake news. You know what I'm referring to. It's this false or misleading information that gets presented as facts. Here are a few examples of fake news that have gone viral. There was one article entitled, Leonardo DiCaprio donates $10 million to his grandmother's homeland, Ukraine. Now, you may be feeling all these warm fuzzies inside about Leonardo, his generosity, and all of that, but the fact is, he didn't do it. All right, here's another one. This one, This one was classic clickbait. Pope Francis shocks the world, endorses Donald Trump for president. Now, this one got 960,000 Facebook engagements, but it was not true. Okay, here's, here's one last one. This one was very concerning to many of us. It was entitled, U.S. Bacon Reserves Hit a 50-Year Low. Now, maybe you saw that one and your heart started racing and you're wondering, supply chains took away our whipped cream at Thanksgiving and now they're taking away our bacon at Christmas. Where is the justice in the world? Now, riots were about to break out in most major cities across the U.S. when thankfully we found out the story was fake news. Uh, Good news, though, you can still get all the bacon and bacon derivatives during the holiday season for your friends and family members to stuff their their stockings. I found a few of these bacon candy canes, in case you're interested. Bacon for men, do you see that? You're like like sizzling hot when you spray a little bit of that stuff. But listen, the the low bacon reserves, it was a lie. It, it It was fake news. Now fake news consists of stories that are meant to deliberately misinform readers and spread disinformation abroad. 
But I want to tell you something very important this morning. The message of Scripture is not fake news. The accounts of the Bible are true and reliable. And I think as Luke opens up this book of the gospel, he wants us to understand that. This book, the book of Luke, is not fake news. It's true. It's reliable. You can trust it. In verses 1 through 4, the passage that I just read, Luke sets out to write a historically accurate, a carefully researched, and well-organized narrative of Jesus' life and ministry. You see that in these verses. He says, he says, verse three, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Look at verse four. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. The famous archaeologist William Ramsey, he said about, about Luke, he said, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, but he is possessed of the true historic sense. In short, he should be placed among the very greatest of historians. Now, why could Ramsey come to that conclusion about Luke? Well, because what we find out in these first four verses is that Luke did hard work to come up with this gospel. And it wasn't just Luke. He was superintended upon by the Holy Spirit. But in these opening verses, what is he saying? Luke's saying, listen, I carefully interviewed eyewitnesses. You see that in verse number two. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. Luke went and he had these interviews. Likely, as we, as we read the Gospel of Luke, we're going to find out, likely he interviewed Jesus' mother, Mary. There's some things in this Gospel that are unique they're not found in Matthew or Mark or John. And it's likely because he interviewed Jesus' mother, Mary. He interviews eyewitnesses. He traveled around to these different towns where Jesus ministered. And he sat down with people who would tell him the accounts. Official storytellers in these various villages. And he listened to the things that Jesus said and did. I want you to imagine yourself in a very small community, a, a little village in Palestine somewhere. There's no printed books, there's no newspapers, there's no television or internet. What would it be like when something great happened in that little village? I mean, what would it be like? Imagine if there was an earthquake, a battle, a famine, maybe the emperor came for a visit passing through. What would it be like in that little village? I'll tell you what it would be like people would tell the story of what happened. I mean, if you weren't there in person, someone who was there in person would tell you about it. And the story would spread through that village. And by about day one or day two, what would happen is everyone would know the story of what happened in the village. But there were some people in the village who were probably better storytellers. They were recognized as the right people to pass down this account. What Luke is saying in the opening of his gospel is that he met with those storytellers, those accredited tellers in each village who would pass along what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Those are the people he calls ministers of the word in verse number two. So he met with eyewitnesses. He met with these accredited storytellers, those who held what happened and what Jesus said. He went around like an investigative reporter. He collected written fragments, he interviewed people, and he compiled a seriously researched, not a random collection, a seriously researched account of what Jesus did and what Jesus said. He followed it closely for some time, he writes in these opening verses. He gives an orderly account that was superintended upon by the Holy Spirit himself. And why did Luke do this? Not all New Testament books have a purpose clause. In other words, not all New Testament books tell you exactly why they're written, but the Gospel of Luke does. In verse number four, we find out why 
Luke went to this painstaking work to put together this gospel account of Jesus. Why did he do it? In verse number four, so that we could have certainty. So that we could be sure. So that we, like Theophilus, could have a deep-rooted knowledge of what Jesus did and what Jesus said. Now, why is this so critical for us? That we really know about Jesus, what he did, and what he said. Well, My friends, Luke will later write in the book called Acts. In Acts 4, he'll say, it's because there is salvation in no one else. Why do we need to have certainty, verse 4? Why must we be sure about what Jesus did and what Jesus said? It's because there's salvation in no one else. You can't look anywhere else for salvation, only to Jesus. So you must be sure. You must know for sure the things he did and said. So with that introduction, how does Luke begin his gospel account? Well, surprisingly, he doesn't start with Jesus. He said, wait, 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 I thought we're supposed to be sure about the words and works of Jesus. But he doesn't start with Jesus, no. He doesn't start with Jesus. He backs up the story and he opens with the forerunner to Jesus named John the Baptist. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in the opening of chapter one. It's almost as though the headliner, Jesus, is going to take center stage. But first, there's like an opener. You know, you've been to a concert before. You went for a particular band. That's the headline band. But then you get there and you wait and a smaller, less known band comes out and plays a few numbers and then clears the stage. John the Baptist is kind of like the opener. Jesus is the headliner, but John the Baptist is kind of like the opener. And that's where Luke starts. Now, I don't want to suggest that John was just a warm-up. But John's purpose was to get people ready for the coming of the Messiah. So I think it's a fair analogy for us. You know, just like a professional athlete will have an announcer call out his name before he takes the field. Or just like a member of the president's staff will say, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States, before he comes up to give his speech. Just as that happens, what Luke is unfolding here in chapter one is John the Baptist comes and he says, ladies and gentlemen, be prepared for the coming of Jesus. So this morning, let's look at the story of John the Baptist. As this chapter unfolds, starting in verse number five, I want you to notice that it begins with a, a bit of a foreboding tone. It's almost like, here's Luke, he's going to start his gospel. You're thinking, oh, let's start out on a good note. Nope. <laughs> he's going to start out with dark days. That's kind of how I, I think about the first scene here, beginning in verse number five. John and his birth is set in a time that's very troublesome. Notice verse number five. It begins this way. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, and you want to just keep reading because you don't know who Herod is. But I want to reframe it and maybe it will help you feel what these readers felt. In the days of Adolf Hitler, Fuhrer of the Nazi party, now how did that set the tone? That's what people would have felt in this opening verse, verse five, in the days of Herod. Why? Because Herod was a cruel, possibly insane, murderous tyrant. He was suspicious of everyone. His brother-in-law, for instance, became too popular among the people and somehow drowned in a very shallow pool. Now, you might think that's just an unfortunate event, except for the fact that as court officials became more popular, some of them got clubbed to death. Herod had two of his sons strangled because he thought they were plotting against him. 
he had his favorite wife, Mary Amney, killed in a fit of jealous rage. Now you say, that's his favorite one? What happened to the others? I don't know. He had people burned alive. I mean, when this, when this opens in verse number five, in the days of Herod, the great king of Judah, people are like, that guy was terrible. They don't get warm fuzzies inside. They're thinking to themselves, those were terrible times. Those were dark days. His reign from 37 to 4 BC was not a good time in Israel. And I say that not just because of his oppressive rule, not just because he represented this puppet of Roman occupation, not just because there was political unrest in Israel. That's not the only reason why these were dark days. The darkness was also related to the silence of God. Say, Lucas, what do you you mean by that? Well, when Luke opens his gospel account here, you have to realize that there had been 400 years of silence. There were no prophets since Malachi. Like if you fold through the books of the Bible, you'll find that the last book of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. And then there's probably a page division that's blank, and then it says New Testament, and then you begin with Matthew, Mark, Luke. The last prophet in the history of Israel prior to the opening here of Luke's gospel account had been 400 years ago. There had been no prophetic word. The spiritual leaders in Israel had been ensnared in religious tradition. In some cases, they even capitulated to corruption. So when you think about the spiritual tone of Israel, I've already talked about the political tone with Herod, but when you think about the spiritual tone of Israel, it was also a time of darkness. Because the leaders themselves were corrupt. They were ensnared in tradition. One author writes, the priesthood was quite corrupt at that time, especially at the top. Another scholar writes, the priesthood had become a corrupt crime syndicate and the temple was a funnel for their money. I'm saying that to explain that all was not well in Israel at large. But as this dreary backdrop This cloud cover starts the opening of this book of the Bible. We find that the darkness was not merely political, nor was it Israel's spirituality at large. But Luke introduces us to a shadow that lurked in a more personal story. It's the story of a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And in verse number five, we find out that they're both from priestly families. Take a look. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So here you have these these two, this, this couple, and we're introduced to them, and they seem very favored. They're both from priestly families. But you notice in verse number six that they're heartbroken because of something that's going on in their life. They're both righteous before the Lord. They're walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Look at verse seven. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Can you imagine what it was like for Zechariah and Elizabeth month after month after month of disappointment. You know, maybe in the beginning of their marriage, they thought to themselves, we can't get pregnant. But by the time we read what Luke writes here, they're old, and now they wouldn't get pregnant. I read about this, and I just thought about what it, what, what it must have been like for them to suffer through persistent infertility. You know, all the prying questions at holiday gatherings. So, when are you gonna have children? Or all these well-meaning comments of concern. You know, they look at you. We're praying for you. They say it in their spiritual voice, you know. We're praying for you. You can imagine how hard it must have been for Elizabeth to go to baby showers and rejoice with other women while simultaneously feeling a deep ache inside of her. You can imagine that she battled doubts 
about God's goodness. You can imagine that she had this temptation towards jealousy over other people's children. You can imagine how hard it was for her not to get angry when people made insensitive remarks. Now, we may understand some of those things, but I want you to realize that the culture in Israel was far worse than our own when it came to this issue. Because they were part of a culture where childless women were mocked and gossiped about. The assumption was if you couldn't have a child, you must have sinned very deeply. The curse of God was upon you. You were being judged by the Lord if you couldn't have children in this first century Judaism. The rabbis, they wrote about this. They said there are seven sorts of people that are excommunicated from God. Listen to the first two. Quote, a Jew who has no wife. Second, a Jew who has a wife who has no child. They taught at that time, you are excommunicated from God if you can't have children. In the Hebrew tradition, barrenness even became grounds for divorce. So I want you to realize when we start reading these verses in the opening of Luke chapter 1 about these, these, these people, they are in troublesome times. Elizabeth is facing shame and reproach and disgrace. She's under the weight of a heavy stigma because they can't have children. There's a dark shadow in Zechariah and Elizabeth's story. Now, I think we should pause for a moment and think about what we're learning here. Yes, there were dark days. There was a barrenness of God's prophetic word. There was a barrenness of political justice. There was a barrenness in Elizabeth's womb. But darkness isn't the only thing you see in this story. I want you to notice how here's this elderly couple and they didn't get what they wanted, but they refused to get bitter in their sorrow. Now I want you to see how in this passage, this couple served God faithfully even into their old age. Notice verse number six again. They were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Even though their hope wasn't realized, they still faithfully served the Lord. They didn't get what they wanted most, but they pursued God anyways. Now, I think this is a real challenge for us because it teaches us that it is possible to walk blamelessly even though you're suffering horribly. And for some of us, our suffering has become an excuse for our sin. And I think when we look at this couple, they walked blamelessly even though they suffered horribly. And I wonder if some of us have to think about that a little bit more. How can we serve faithfully through our disappointments and pains this season? Maybe you struggle with something similar, no child. Or maybe it's no spouse. Or maybe it's no job or no house. But the question is this, do we serve God only when we get what we want? Is that how we do it? Well, God, I'll serve you as long as you give me what I desperately want. No, my friends, when we do that, listen, when we do that, we treat God like some sort of divine vending machine. Oh God, I'll behave properly. I'll put my coinage of good behavior into the machine if you'll just dole out what I want. No, my friends, that's not how it works. We don't just serve God when we get what we want. That's called the prosperity gospel, not the biblical gospel. Let's keep thinking about our text this morning. Even though people around Elizabeth and Zechariah had bad manners and poor theology, even though they questioned whether it was because of their sin they were childless. Notice how Elizabeth and Zechariah trusted God. They just continued to walk righteously before him. In other words, they were surrounded by people who were mistaken about them. People who had wrong opinions about them. People who spoke evil of them. And yet, they didn't let that derail them. I just wonder how many of us struggle with such deep roots of insecurity that when someone says something bad about us or something false about us or something wrong about us, it derails our whole walk with God. 
Look at this couple. People were chatting and gossiping, whispering about them all the time, and they were wrong. But Elizabeth and Zechariah just continued to walk before the Lord righteously. They seemed to understand that God has a purpose in our suffering, my friends. It's not always judgment for sin. Sometimes God allows us to go through difficult times because he wants to teach us endurance or he wants us to focus our hopes on him and him alone. Or sometimes he just wants us to wait patiently for his blessing that will come sometime later. My friends, the question to ask, if you're in a time of suffering this morning, the question to ask is not what have I done to deserve this, but how can I glorify God through this? And I think that's what you find with Zechariah and Elizabeth. My friends, we need to pray that God will change us and make us more like him while we wait in our time of suffering. Like fine wine and good cheese that improves with time. God wants us to change into his likeness while we wait for him. I think that's what this couple wanted as well. What we find in the opening of their story is that their, their pain pushed them to God. Yes, they suffered, but through it, they magnified God's sovereignty, and it teaches us those lessons as well. So here we are, Luke's opening his gospel account. He tells us about Herod, an evil king. We know about Israel, a corrupt nation. Elizabeth, who's old and barren, dark days. But those don't define the whole story. You see, as we keep reading, we get to scene two. And what happens next is totally unexpected, utterly amazing. Here is a priest without a child, Zechariah, who's going to meet an angel with good news. So the next scene in this story, I just entitled Good News. Dark days that are broken into with good news. In verse number 19, skip down to verse number 19 and just see this phrase right here. This is the angel speaking. And in verse number 19, he says this. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you, do you see it there? This good news. Now, there's this glimmer of light that's kind of piercing through the darkness in the story here. But before I get too far ahead of myself, I have to explain how this angel came to meet up with Zechariah. How did this supernatural encounter unfold? The times are troublesome in the opening verses here. This couple sought to live for, for the Lord into their old age. Zechariah's a priest. He's from the division of Abijah. We see that in verse five. Now, you may not catch this, but you have to turn back to the Old Testament to find out that the priests were divided up into 24 divisions. So when Luke mentions here that Zechariah is from the division of Abijah. He's just telling us this is the one of 24 different divisions of priests in Israel that Zechariah was from. Now at the time of this account that Luke records here, there were something like 18 to 20,000 priests in Israel. So keep that number in the back of your mind. Somewhere around 18 to 20,000 priests. They're divided up into 24 divisions. And those divisions are assigned certain weeks that they serve at the temple. Because listen, the temple didn't need 20,000 priests buzzing around there. They divided them up and assigned them particular weeks. So Zechariah, in the course of a whole year, would have served two weeks. He would have gone for one week at one point in the year and then gone for another week at another point in the year. Other than the pilgrimage feasts, that's how the priests operated. One week there, serve, go back home. That's what we're, we're coming to understand in the opening verses here. So what would have happened is Zechariah's division would have been notified and Zechariah has to come for a week. And so he leaves the hill country of Judea. He travels to Jerusalem. He puts on his priestly robes and he does whatever they tell him to do in his priestly duties. Notice how it's described in verses eight through 10. Take a look, verse eight. While he's serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot 
to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, you may not catch what I just read, but in verse number nine, do you see where it says Zechariah was, quote, chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense? You're like, well, isn't that what priests do? They, you know, ring bells and burn incense and make these funny signs of peace with their fingers. And I mean, isn't that what priests do? No, you're not catching it. He was selected. Remember I said there were 18 to 24,000 priests and only one division is going to be sent there in that particular week to do their stuff. Well, out of that division, you have to realize they cast lots. Maybe they had some sort of dice or maybe they drew straws. We're not really sure what it was that they did, but they cast lots. And during that one week of service, only 14 priests would be selected. What that comes to out of the whole group of priests in Israel was 0.07% had the opportunity that came to Zechariah. And Jewish tradition says this, you will only get this chance once. If you, if you get the opportunity, if you're selected by lot to offer incense, you only get it to do it once in your lifetime. You'll never be eligible to do it again. There were most priests that never got to do this. Most priests in Israel were never able to offer incense. So we read right over that. We're like, well, that's what priests do. No, that's not what priests do. It represented 0.07% of the priests that got this opportunity and only got it once in a lifetime. Once in a lifetime, perhaps, if you were selected by lot, you would be able to go into the holy place to offer incense. Now, before we think that this was some sort of luck or mere coincidence, Let's remember Proverbs 16.33. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. God had a special plan for Zechariah on this day. I want you to picture what it would have been like for this old priest. We know from the text, he's old. He's served all these years. He's gone each of those weeks. He was supposed to go. I kind of get this idea like, you know, like, like a military reservist. You're called up to duty to do your two weeks. And he, I mean, he's just done this his whole life. He's, he's old now. He's never been selected. Never been selected. Never been selected. Here's this old guy. He's going to do his duty and serve the Lord, walk righteously and blamelessly before God. And he gets to the temple and they, they draw the lots. And out of all these priests, he gets selected. Imagine what, I mean, this is like, folks, I just want you to know, this isn't like being selected for jury duty. This is like being selected for the ministry lottery. I mean, you just won big. This is like Powerball. He's like, I mean, in a holy way, you know, in a holy way. He's like, he hit it big. You can imagine Zechariah, he's beside himself with excitement. I mean, he's going to have the opportunity to go into the holy place right next to the holy of holies. The only other one that got to go further than him was the high priest himself one time a year. And this was incredible. Picture these concentric spaces in the temple. You have the outermost court of the Gentiles. It was open to men and women, Jews and Gentiles alike. But then you go through the beautiful gate and you enter the court of the women, which was open to ritually pure Jewish men and Jewish women. And then you go through the Nicanor Gate you enter this inner court where the priests performed their sacrifices and only Jewish men were allowed beyond that point. The last part of the temple was the actual temple building known as the holy place. Only priests could enter in there if they were chosen by lot, like Zechariah. Once in the morning and once at night, one priest who was chosen by lot would go into the holy place. The place where you had the menorah, they would trim the wicks of the menorah. On Sabbath day, they would put fresh bread on the table of showbread. They would see the curtain. I, mean, just, I just want you to realize this. Not everyone saw this curtain, the veil, that was embroidered with cherubim that partitioned off the Holy of Holies. Not everybody saw that. I mean, these priests who were selected by Lot, they got a chance to see these, these ancient spaces and places, and accoutrements, and Zechariah was one of them. Burn incense, light the wicks of the menorah, 
replace the 12 loaves, he was going to get this chance. Okay. He puts on his priestly robes. I just want you to picture this. He puts on his priestly robes. He walks past all of these people who had gathered for prayer on the steps leading up to the, the Nicanor Gate. He walks past all of them, and all of them know what he's going to do. He's the priest that's going to offer incense. And so they all watch him. And the reason they're watching him, the reason they're gathered there waiting at the hour of incense is because when he would put the incense on the altar, the smoke would ascend. And as the smoke ascended, they would see the smoke from the incense ascend, and the people would bow down and pray because they believed that their prayers, like the incense, were rising to God. So here are all these Jewish people. They were gathered on that day to pray. It's the hour of incense. Here comes Zechariah in his priestly robes. In one hand, he has a censer of coals from the altar. In the other hand, he has a measure of incense. And he goes through this outer veil into the holy place. It seems darker than perhaps he imagined. The walls disappear into the shadows a hundred feet overhead, these cedar-paneled walls. A lampstand flickers on his left a table of showbread on his right. It's all neatly arranged. He's never done this before. He approaches the altar. He pours out, just as he was told, this old man on the greatest day of his career, he pours out the coals from his censer. And then he covers them over with this finely ground powder of spices and frankincense and the smoke begins, begins to ascend representing the prayers of the people. As he looks through the smoke, what does he see? But an embroidered veil with cherubim. Do you remember? That's the veil that marks off the Holy of Holies. And so there's like this smoke and these images of angels. And he decides to fall down because that's what you're supposed to do when you go in there. The priest was supposed to fall down and pray. And so he puts the incense on, smoke begins to rise. He sees the embroidered angels, the smoke. He falls down to pray. And what's the, what's the memory in his mind? Smoke, figures of angels. He begins to pray to God for the salvation of Israel. You almost imagine Zechariah saying something like, God, would you just be gracious to us? Would you finally deliver us from this heavy hand of oppression? Would you free your people? Would you heal your people? You imagine this priest just praying for the people. Notice verse number 11. He's whispering these words. When in verse number 11, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense and Zechariah is troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. Remember, I mean, he had seen the veil with the embroidered angels, the smoke's going up. He's trying to remember what to do. He's an old guy who's never done this before, having the most amazing day of his life. He falls down to pray for the grace of God to be upon him and upon his people and deliver him. He kind of squints through his eyes because the smoke's in his eyes and they're watering and there's an angel. I mean, the guy freaks out. I mean, he rubs his eyes. Am I seeing something? You know, you can almost imagine. Are those my cataracts? What's going on? No, it's for real. The angel of the Lord is standing right there. Now, I have to tell you, when I read about angels in the Bible, I don't get this picture of Clarence. You know, the 1946 Jimmy Stewart, It's a Wonderful Life. Kind of this cuddly old grandpa figure. You know, I, that's not the picture you get in the Bible of angels. Angels are glorious and they're supernatural creatures. And when we encounter them in scripture, they're terrifying, quite frankly. Which is one of those funny things, you know, when people say they saw angels and they feel all warm and stuff and they got like the Gerber baby with little harps kind of picture. I'm like, I'm not sure you saw an angel. Because <laughs> everywhere in the Bible when people see angels, I mean, they soil their pants. I mean, that's what happens. They're fearful. They're terrified. This is scary. And that's what happens here with Zechariah. I mean, he's terrified. In fear, he's falling down. What does the angel say? Now, this is another classic part of the Bible. If you've read the Bible long enough, you almost wonder if there's like an angelic handbook. You know, like, now listen, angels, when you go and meet up with humans... They're going to be very afraid. They're going to kind of tremble and they're going to be all anxious. And so the first thing you need to say is, be not afraid, you know. And so Gabriel here, it's like, okay, I got it memorized. This is what I do. Zechariah is all fearful. And that's what he says. Fear not, you know, don't be afraid. Verse number 13. 
Don't be afraid. Now, in our text, the angel's name is Gabriel. He says in verse 13, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, Zechariah's prayer was likely, like, and I, I just want you to realize this, when he went into the holy place, he was likely not praying for a son. Those years had passed. He was likely praying that God would be gracious to his people. That was the job of the priest. Pray for the people. He was likely praying, God, would you be gracious to your people? God, would you deliver your people? God, would you set your people free? And here comes Gabriel, the messenger of the Lord, and says, God's answered your prayer. He is going to be gracious to his people. He is going to deliver them. He is going to set them free. And your son is going to prepare Israel for the coming Messiah. You're going to name him John. Do you know what John means? It means God has been gracious. You're going to name him God has been gracious. Now, the angel describes a few unique things about John. You see him in verses 14 through 17. First, he's going to be a source of joy for his parents and for many others. Second, you see in those verses, verses 14 through 17, that he's going to be a great prophet before the Lord. He's going to be marked out with certain restrictions, like, like, like the Nazarites. He wouldn't drink wine or strong drink. Third, you see in verse number 15, take a look there. Let me just walk you through this. Beginning in verse 14, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So he would be first a source of joy, second a great prophet, third he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see that in verse 15. Now this is interesting, I want to pause on it for a minute because the Bible doesn't view the unborn as undifferentiated protoplasm. The Bible doesn't view the unborn as a mere lifeless fetus. The Bible doesn't view the unborn as biomass lacking personhood. The Bible views the unborn as truly alive people. And we see it here, don't we? Because here's the unborn John who's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And later we're going to see him. He's not even born yet. He's going to leap for joy in his mother's womb a little bit later in the story. John was spirit-filled while still unborn. Here's the fourth thing you see about John, and that is he's going to turn people back to the Lord. What Gabriel, the angel, does is he quotes from Malachi. Remember I had said there had been silence for 400 years? Malachi was the last prophet. It was just silent and dark for the people of Israel. Gabriel comes on the scene and he picks up where Malachi left off. He quotes from Malachi. In Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, Malachi the prophet, this last Old Testament prophet says, there's going to be one coming who's the messenger of the covenant. That's going to be the Messiah. But he says, before that happens, Malachi talks about a forerunner. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. And what is Gabriel saying? Gabriel is telling this, this priest named Zechariah that he's going to have a son. And his son is going to go in the spirit and power of Elijah to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He's going to prepare God's people for the coming Messiah to make ready, verse 17, for the Lord, a people prepared. God truly was gracious to his people. I want to pause at this point in the story and I want to think once again about what we're learning along the way. I think first we're learning that even though Zechariah and Elizabeth were elderly, Notice verse 18. Take a look at verse 18 for a second because this is kind of funny. I hope you laugh when you read the scriptures sometimes because there's some funny things in it. Look at verse 18. This is a little hint for all the guys in the room, okay? Verse 18. I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. 
Did you catch that? He didn't say like, I'm an old man and she's an old lady. No, he doesn't. He's a smart dude, right? He's teaching us something here. Okay, even though this couple had borne the image of God for many years, they didn't let age hinder them from God's work. I mean, are you catching that in the story? They're old. He says it. But they didn't stop serving God. Wrinkles and joint pain don't excuse you from God's work. I think for all the older folk in the room, this is an encouragement. It means God's not done with you yet. You're not forgotten in God's plan. You're not just supposed to be along for the ride in some sort of retirement mode. No, you are treasured and honored and meant to be actively involved in God's work. Here's the second thing I want you to see. I want you to see that centuries of prayer had gone by. I mean, think of all of the righteous Israelites from Malachi until, until Christ. Think of all of those righteous Israelites who had prayed that God would deliver his people. They had pleaded for the Messiah to come, but there was silence, silence, silence. Think about the entirety of Zechariah and Elizabeth's marriage. They prayed for a child and prayed for a child and prayed for a child and prayed for a child, but there was nothing but silence. I think what we learn here is that God's silence doesn't indicate his absence. You may be praying and praying and praying and praying and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and you've gotten to this point like, God, are you even there? I want you to know from the story God's there. He hears. His delay doesn't indicate displeasure and it doesn't always indicate denial. God answers prayer in his time. We're supposed to wait and trust. Okay, now back to our story. Okay, remember scene one, dark days. They were dark days in Israel. They felt so oppressive. The people, the Israelites wondered if this would ever lift. There was barrenness that marked the people of God as a whole and Elizabeth in particular, and it seemed like things would never change. But that's when the good news broke in. A ray of gospel, light comes. And it's almost as if this message from the angel is kind of like, ready or not, here it comes. The angel appears. Now when the gospel breaks through gloom, here's the final thing I think you see in this story. When the gospel breaks through gloom, we're supposed to be ready. And so I just titled this last scene of the story, Be Ready. You may have some dark days, I want you to know, though, that God can break through with good news, but you need to be ready for that. When I was a kid, I would play, uh, I, okay, I was thinking about this, because I wrote this, and then I was thinking about this to myself. I'm like, I don't know what it's like to be a kid these days, because um, I'm looking at my own kids, and they don't do this. But back when I was a kid, you, you had to get up off the couch to change the channel. Yes. With your hand, you know. And we had like three television stations on my TV and we were only allowed to watch Channel 3 STM Club cartoons for an hour and a half on Saturday mornings if we were quiet and didn't wake up our parents. That was like the rule. So I just want to tell you, I didn't grow up with the, you know, the whole screen time thing. It was an anomaly because most of the screen was just fuzz. You know, we didn't get any picture. So as a kid, I just spent my time outside. I rode these things called bikes that didn't, have like an electric motor connected to it. You used your legs, right? We rode a thing called a bike. We played things called board games. Uh, we played outside, baseball, football, tag, hide and go seek. These kids are, what's hide and go seek? Is that a new video game? No, it's a, no. Hide and go seek. And, and we would have this thing. We'd do it actually at night and friends from the neighborhood would come over. Someone would be it. And when you're it, you'd stand at the big tree in the middle of the yard, in the middle of the dark. And you'd stand there and you'd cover your eyes and you'd start counting to a certain number. And then when you get done with that number, this is what you'd say. Anybody know what you say? This is what you say. Apple, peaches, pumpkin pie. Who's not ready? Holler. See, none of you even played these games. You would say, apple, peaches, pumpkin pie, who's not ready, holler, I. That's what you'd yell at the tree. And if there was someone who hadn't found a hiding space yet, they would have to say, I. 
and then you'd have to start counting again until they could find their hiding space. Apple, peaches, pumpkin pie, who's not ready? Holler, I. If there was utter silence, you knew that everyone had found a hiding place, and then you'd say, ready or not, here I come. That was kind of the code of the neighborhood in Durhamville, New York. House rules. It's the w- All right, this one's not working. I'm going to tell you something. If we were in the temple, all right, thanks, Carl. Carl's over there. He knows what I'm saying. All right. If you were in the temple and someone said, apple, peaches, pumpkin pie, who's not ready, holler, I. Zechariah would have said, I. I am not ready. And this should catch us off guard. We should be surprised at this in the story. Because Zechariah is a priest. He's having his greatest day of worship ever. He got selected to be in the holy place. He's praying. I mean, what what more could we ask for? He, of all people, should be ready for God to do something. But he's not. And that's what's surprising about this story. He wasn't ready to believe the word of the Lord. And that's what we see in verse number 18. He'd been praying, but he wasn't ready for God to answer prayer. He wanted the deliverance of Israel, but he wasn't ready for a message of God's grace coming. The angel just delivered this amazing news that he's going to have a son, and God's going to start this series of events to deliver his people. And in verse number 18, look at what Zechariah says. And Zechariah said to the angel, Well, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. You have to to understand what Zechariah is saying here. So I'm going to put it in some modern form. I know that this is a miraculous appearance. I know this is coming at a miraculous time and this is miraculous news. But how can I be sure there are miracles? That's basically what he's doing here. (laughs) You just got selected, 0.07%, to go into the holy place. It's not a coincidence you're there. There's an angel that's speaking to you and answering your prayers, and you're saying, well, I'm not sure that miracles can really happen. Look, I'm an old man. I love this in the text, because in 18, verse 18, Zechariah says, I'm an old man, as though that's going to stop God. And then the angel says, well, I am Gabriel. You see that in verse 19? It's like, it's like a retort. Well, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the days that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Friends, Zechariah wanted proof rather than a promise from God. He wanted a sign so that he could walk by sight instead of walking by faith. Zechariah was filled with doubt. This can't be. It it can't happen. We can't do this. Listen, while his biology was right, his theology was wrong. He was forgetting the power of God. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, wrote about this. He says, Zechariah looked at his age He looked at his gray hair. He looked at his body that had lost strength. He looked at his wife's sterility. He refused to accept on faith what the angel had clearly revealed. My friends, when we look at ourselves and all of our weakness, all of our inability, we will lose sight of God's great power. That's what is sadly happening in this account. And so God strikes Zechariah speechless Before we get too hard on this guy, I just want to admit it is so easy for us to focus on our problems and forget God's promises that we can slip and trip and fall just like Zechariah. We can get so overwhelmed with the impossibility of our circumstance or the limitations of our abilities that we forget the God factor. Like you may be walking into this season of holidays and the things that are heaviest on your heart and biggest in your mind are things you can't change. They seem, they seem unchangeable, out of reach. Nothing can be done about it. You're forgetting God. 
You're forgetting the God factor. I think that's what was going on here. A priest who had been trained in the scriptures. A priest who knew the promises of God. A a priest who was praying that God would act. He ends up not really expecting God to answer. He wasn't ready when the good news came. Now you need to remember this was the hour of incense. People are all gathered outside on the steps right at the gate of Nicanor. They're waiting in the courtyard for the incense to ascend from the altar. It's when they bow to pray and then they wait for the priest. What would happen is the priest would go in there, he'd put the incense on those coals, it would rise up and then he would come out. And that priest was supposed to stand before the people and offer a blessing. Well, look at verse 21. In verse 21 it says the people were waiting for Zechariah. They're wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, He was unable to speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Because of his unbelief, Zechariah was rendered speechless. Perhaps deaf as well, if you look at verse 62. We need to catch the gravity of what just happened. He just received the greatest news in 400 years. And because of his unbelief, he couldn't tell anyone. What are we learning from this as we close? Well, I think we learn first that mountaintops of faith, pinnacles of worship, they can have cliffs of doubt and valleys of unbelief lurking nearby. You may think to yourself, I'm in a great spot spiritually. I mean, things have never been better. I mean, I'm on a mountaintop. Beware of the valleys. He's in the holy place praying and he slips in unbelief. He's experienced a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and he, he fails when it comes to faith. I want you to consider, secondly, the fact that there are consequences for unbelief. When we are faithless, my friends, we're actually insulting God. We're saying, your word can't be trusted. And there are consequences for unbelief. For Zechariah, the consequence of unbelief was he was made mute for nine months. But for humanity at large, the consequence of unbelief is far worse. Listen to John 3, 16 and 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed on the name of the Son of God. There are consequences for unbelief. Third, I'd like to suggest that we need to learn from this story that when God speaks, our responsibility is to trust his word. You don't have to understand how it's all going to work. It doesn't have to fit within your standards of rationalism. You just need to trust God's word. What he wants us to do is to live by faith. Listen to what he says. It doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. It doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. Do what God says. Believe his word. And thankfully, I think that's what we see with Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife. Just some simple faith. The text in verse number 23, it says, when Zechariah's time of service was ended, he went home. I, I was chuckling just thinking about this story. Can you picture Zechariah playing charades, trying to explain that an angel told him that he would have a baby? Can you imagine what this looked like with him and Elizabeth? And she's like, oh yeah, God told you that. Yeah, you know, oh yeah. But the text just says this. It says when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Verse 24 says, Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among my people. She saw God's hand. She praised him for his blessing. Okay, that's the end of the story. But I want to ask you this. Why did Luke include Zechariah's faith flop right at the beginning of the gospel? 
When are you wondering that? You're like, okay, here's Luke. He carefully researches all the words and works of Jesus, wants us to have certainty and believe in him. And the first thing he tells us is about someone's faltering faith. Why does he do that? Why doesn't he give us a more inspiring, heartwarming, hallmarky sort of story to help us? Why does he give us a doubting priest who's struck dumb because of his unbelief? Well, I think it's because Luke wants to show us how Zechariah responded to the gospel so that unlike him, we will respond in faith. My friends, we have to catch the opening of this gospel is painted with a picture of darkness, but good news breaks through and it's available to all who will readily receive it in faith. So this Advent season, let's take God at his word and simply trust him.